I did something I never do this morning. Ever. Ever. I saw a post on Facebook that bothered me. And I responded. <laughs> um, and it is Good Friday. Um, and I've been preparing a message all week. And I've been on the fence about this message because it's a lot, um, which is part of the course for me. But the, the message... Um, that I saw on Facebook. A person I used to serve in a youth ministry with, we used to hang out a lot. He was a very good friend. He and his wife worked at a church I worked at. Um, there was a post, and he was reposting it and sharing about how Good Friday was good. And somewhere in it, it was a post, um, don't have time to go too far into this, but it was a post that essentially talked about Jesus as a social activist who advocated social justice and who died because people were corrupt. But he wasn't a Messiah because, as this author put it in the Gospel of Mark, we never see Jesus calling himself the Messiah. And this same author said, and we also don't see Jesus calling himself the one who would die to save others. This author made all these claims and this person that I used to spend a lot of time with and used to admire his faith, on Good Friday, made a post that slaps the crucifixion in the face. And so I responded, and I, the response was simple, Mark 10, 35 or 45. Um, Jesus calls himself Son of Man. Son of Man is a messianic term, really simple. Um, and, and further into this, um, when he says that in Mark 10, he goes on to say he came to die as a ransom for many. So this whole article falls apart. And, and I, I, I start here because the reason that this article can exist is because there is a big problem. And that big problem is sin. And, and sin at its core is man's attempt to redefine good and evil on our own terms. It's what we do it's what we do well. We're going to talk about it a lot tonight. Not to shame us, but to recognize the realities of why we should feel ashamed. And, and so as we start tonight, I, I want to encourage all of you that, that tonight we're going to take a broad look at the first five books of the Bible. And the reason that we are going to do this is because the reason that this author could post this. The reason someone could repost it who has grown up in the church, who, who tries their best to love God, is because we do not have a foundation of sin. We do not recognize what the Bible really says about sin, because if we did, if, if we did, we would have such a different understanding of the cross. Let's pray. Lord, today is good. And it is good by your definition because what you did today was so good for us. Your Bible shows us just how you would have life for us. In Genesis 1, you desired that, that we would be in relationship with you ruling this earth on your behalf. And that we would be ruling it as you delegated authority to us. And we would be in right relationship with you and each other. And in Revelation 22, that same image is present. A God with his people in the land. And Lord, 
we recognize that tonight is the day that you provided us so long ago. Tonight is the day you provided us a way to make what we lost with sin a reality again. And so we pray tonight that, that you would just open our eyes to your word, that your spirit would be speaking through me. It would not be my words. And that for all of us, you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see just the mighty work that your son has done. It's in your name we pray. Amen. In Genesis 1, God created the heavens and the earth. And it says that the earth was formless and void. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. The, the literal language of Hebrews, or in Hebrew, is the earth was welter and waste, or waste and wasteland. It, there was nothing to be done. And then God spoke. And creation Six days of creation. Each day, God creating the heavens and the earth. It was good. It was good. It was good. And then we come to the final day and God comes to the culminating act of creation. And He says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And God in that moment creates His image bearers, humanity. Male and female, He created them. With the intent of putting them in charge of this good creation, he delegates authority to them. They are to rule, to fill the earth, to multiply, to subdue it. It is to be theirs and they are to be God's. And it's very good. In Genesis 2, we see the picture on a more intimate level as God forms Adam out of the dust. God forms Adam out of the dust and then eventually God gives Adam Eve and they come together, and they are in front of each other. They are naked and unashamed. It is very good. God gives them work to do in the garden. To Adam, when he first puts Adam in, he says, tend it, keep it, take care of it. Just don't eat from this one tree. And at this time, everything is perfect, and there is a perfectly holy God, the Lord. And every day he'd walk in the midst of the garden with them in the cool of the day. They would interact. The Adam and Eve were in right relationship with God in the land where heaven met earth, where they could be in relationship with him and each other with no shame. And then a serpent enters the story. And the serpent tempts the woman. And, and it's, it's really important to note, um, we do this when we talk with our students, um, the man is standing next to the woman. Very important to note. But, but the serpent says to the woman, did God really... And, and he asks these questions. And, he, and, and what he does is he tempts the woman with this idea. And the idea is not just, oh, that fruit looks good. The idea that tempts the woman, she looks at the fruit because the snake tells her, if you eat this, you will be like God. You will define good and evil on your own terms. You will, instead of ruling under Him, you can have His place. And she looked at the fruit. She desired to have God's place. And she took it and she ate it. And then the man did. And immediately they realized they're naked. And, and so they clothe themselves as best as they can. And, and they go on from clothing themselves. The very next thing they do is they, they hear God's coming, and so they hide. Because at this moment, they have sinned. They have redefined good and evil on their own terms. And all of a sudden, even before God tells them they cannot be in His presence, they know that this holy and perfect God, they cannot stand before Him. And, and God asks the man, hey, why are you hiding? Did you eat from the tree? 
And the man who has now redefined good and evil once says, God, it's either your fault or the woman you gave me. God does not respond, but do you see? Adam has redefined good and evil again. And then God says to Eve, what happened? And and Eve says, it's the serpent's fault. Now, no mention here of the fact that Adam and Eve should have been ruling over the beast. And when the beast said that, they should have said, shut up. Um, the, the point here is that they both blame shift. They both say, I'm, I'm not the problem. I'm good enough. Boom. And obviously that's not good enough because they wouldn't be hiding. But, but God at that moment sends them out of the garden. There are going to be consequences. You see, the biggest theme in the Bible in Genesis through Revelation is there is a God who wants to be in relationship with his people in a land, a land where heaven and earth can meet. That is what the garden is, and Adam and Eve are ripped out of it. But before they are, there's one, there's one hope that occurs. And that hope is that God looks not at the woman, not at the man, but God says to the serpent, who represents evil, from that woman, from that woman will come one, who you will bite his heel, and he will crush your head. You'll wound him, but he'll recover and he will destroy you. And so Genesis 4, they're outside of the garden. And Eve conceives and and has her first child. And when she has her child, the, the language is unmistakable. She says, the Lord's given me a man. There's hope. Maybe this will be the one that brings us back into the garden. Maybe this will be the one that brings us back to the place where heaven meets earth in right relationship with each other and God. If you have not read any further into the Bible, it does not go that way because Abel offers a sacrifice to the Lord and Cain offers a sacrifice to the Lord. Abel offers it with his whole heart. He is the second son of Adam and Eve. Cain sees that Abel's sacrifice is not good. Now what's interesting, you may wonder, why did they make a sacrifice in the first place? Because they're outside the garden. And I believe it's because they're trying to get back in. There's no other reason given. But Cain sees that the Lord regards Abel's sacrifice better, not because the Lord wants Cain's sacrifice to be less. Cain offers a sacrifice that's not wholeheartedly to the Lord. Abel offers his best. Cain does not. And so Cain says, look, the Lord thinks he's better than me. And so Cain, in this moment, a simple thing to do would be, I'm going to go offer the best. I did wrong. I repent. I'm going to offer my best. But he instead offers up his brother as a sacrifice. He fights him in the field and kills him because if Abel is out of the picture, Cain becomes the best. He redefines good and evil in his own terms and blood is shed for the first time. And the line of Cain goes on and goes on and goes on and eventually he has a descendant named Lamech who says what Cain did, if that needs to be punished seven times, then what I do needs to be punished 77 times. The cycle of sin gets worse and worse and worse. And Adam and Eve have another son named Seth at this time. And from Seth comes a line that eventually comes to another man named Lamech. But this man's a lot humbler. And he has a son named Noah. And when Noah is born, what, Adam, or what Lamech says about Noah is he says, maybe this will be the one to remove us from this cursed ground. What what Lamech says about Noah is maybe this will be the perfect one, the one promised to the woman that will bring us back into right relationship with God 
in the land that he provided for us. Noah lived 600 years where the Bible says he was blameless. God decides he's going to wipe everything out. He's going to restore the earth through a flood to a place where the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. But he sees Noah and he says, you know what? He's righteous. He's blameless. I'm going to preserve him and his line. And so they enter the ark that they build and they they fill it with all the animals and you get a picture of the garden floating during the flood because God has provided a land for his creation and man is tending that creation. And Noah has been called blameless. And you wonder, after the flood, when the flood recedes and they come out, maybe it'll be better this time. And Noah steps off the ark and takes the animals off the ark and God promises the animals and creation first, I will never do that again. And then God promises Noah and his sons and all of creation again that that he will never flood the earth. That's where when he sees a rainbow, he says, I will never flood the earth. When you see a rainbow, think God's not going to destroy us through a flood. But the, the point is we have hope. And what does Noah do? The next thing Noah does is he plants a garden, a vineyard. And we have to wonder, if we've never heard these stories before, we have to wonder, is this it? Is Noah the one? Are we about to see a reset on creation without sin? And Noah gets drunk. And one of Noah's sons does something that's unspeakable, and the cycle continues. And so man is separated from God, and there is no way back. This is Genesis 10. And we come to Genesis 11, the end of the introduction of the Old Testament. Uh, Genesis 1 through 11 give us the cycle of everything that will happen the rest of the Bible until the cross. And in Genesis 11, It's called the Tower of Babylon. You've probably heard it called the Tower of Babel. We translate it that way, but the actual Hebrew word is Babylon. And it's super intentional. The reason it is the word Babylon is because when we come to the Tower of Babylon, Babylon, the the idea biblically is Babylon is the place where man tries to contend with God. And at the Tower of Babylon, the people say, we can't get back to relationship with God. We can't be in the land He wants us to be in and right relationship with Him because of sin. Let's make our own way to heaven. Let's make our own Eden. Let's make our own place where heaven and earth can meet. Let's build a tower tall enough to where we can be there on our own. When man contends with God, it falls apart, of course, and so they were spread out. They were scattered. Their languages were changed. And God said, this will never happen. And so we come to the end of Genesis 11 and we have seen man try to be in God's good graces. We have seen man try to contend with God. And we have seen this reality of sin that moves them further and further away. And one little promise. And the book of Genesis continues. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God makes a promise to Abraham. You're going to be my people. Your descendants are going to be my people. And I'm going to give you a land. And we should start to think about Eden. And then to Isaac, he continues the promise. And to Jacob, he continues the promise. And at the end of Genesis, in Genesis 49, something happens. Jacob sings a song. Now, this is very important. It it could just be called poetry, but I can't say the the word poem very well. I say it wrong every time, so we're going to call it a song every time. Um, but, But Jacob sings a song, and it is the climax of the book of Genesis. You see, everything that has happened in Genesis up to this point, there's question marks of will they enter the land? Will God do what he said he would do? And where will 
where will the person who will defeat evil come from? And Jacob sings this climactic song at the end of the story. And, and in Genesis 49, he, he sings it and he says, it's through the tribe of Judah. One will come from Judah. And then there's an epilogue. Jacob dies and we go past. But at the end of Genesis, not very many questions are answered except God has made some promises. And so we begin in Exodus where 400 years later and the Israelites are enslaved. And God brings Moses to bring the people out of Egypt. And Egypt is, the language of Egypt is very clear. Egypt is a Babylon. Because Egypt is a place where Pharaoh contends with God. And of course, God's not going to lose that battle. And so Pharaoh and God contend the ten plagues. After the ten plagues, Pharaoh finally says, you can go. And Moses leads the people. And eventually they cross the Red Sea on dry ground. And after they cross Pharaoh and his, and his chariots and his army, they go in after them to try and wipe them out on the other side of the sea. And while Pharaoh and his army are in the midst of the Red Sea, they finally recognize because they see this, this wall of water on either side of us is about to drop. And it says that the Egyptians said, He is the Lord. They finally recognize it right before they are wiped out. And when the Lord does that, the very next thing that happens, the Israelites on the other side, the Israelites on the other side see the bodies and the destruction the Lord has caused. And then they look the other way and see the freedom that the Lord has bought them. And they sing a song. The climax of Exodus is this song where the Lord redeems His people. And His people recognize that He will go before them. He bought them for a price. And He will be their God. And He will be their people. And the rest of the book of Exodus is the story of starting to make God dwell among the people. To make the, the Ark of the Covenant, the Ten Commandments, the Law, and, and, and then the, the, ark, uh, the, the tabernacle, the, the, old, the, te- the temple before the temple didn't need to be mobile anymore. It's the easy way to explain it. But the book of Exodus ends. And we don't really have any answers to the main questions from the start of Genesis but we know that God is answering questions. He's answering the promises to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob and to their descendants. And so we come into Leviticus. And Leviticus is a book all about atonement, of having our relationship with God made right because atonement means to have your debt covered. And there's no song in Leviticus. But we go on to Numbers, and in Numbers, after the atonement and after all of that is in order, in Numbers we see that the people finally go, and they finally walk up to the Jordan, ready to cross into the Promised Land. And what happens on the, on the border, while they're still in the wilderness, God presents them with, it's time to go across, and they send some spies, and the spies tell them, we cannot beat these people. We should go. We should not do this. And the people say to Moses, can we please go back to Egypt. And the God who bought them with a price that they sung about, he's ticked. He's like, no, 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 you're not going back and you're not going in. You guys can wander until this whole generation is gone. And, and what happens out of this is in Numbers, the rest of the book of Numbers, the Israelites wander in the wilderness and nothing good happens. It is a depressing book of the wickedness of Israel as they try and stage mutinies and as they, they fail more and more and more. And at the end of the book of Numbers, there is a song. And that song is not sung by an Israelite. There's this guy named Balaam. He's a prophet. 
He's a pagan prophet. He does not follow after the gods of Israel, he does, or the God of Israel. He follows after his own gods. And a king tells him, hey, can you come out here and curse the Israelites? And there's this whole story, it's a long story, but the, the long story short, Balaam eventually gets there. And the king, his name is Balak, and he says, okay, curse them. And Balaam says, hey, just so you know, I'm just going to say whatever the gods let me say. And the Lord, the God of Israel, who is furious at his people, and they are in judgment, wandering in the wilderness, unable to enter the promised land. The song that Balaam sings is a song of blessing. And he sings like four of them. And all of these songs, Balaam keep, Balak, the, the king keeps saying, hey, stop it. And Balaam's like, I'm sorry, I can't. I got to keep going. I got to keep. It's like he can't stop speaking. And he blesses Israel. And essentially the promise is, even when Israel falls, because God has said they will be his people, God will stay true to his word. And so we come to the book of Deuteronomy. And Deuteronomy is Moses summing up everything from Genesis through Numbers and giving them some advice on how to enter the new land and some commands for entering the new lands. And it ends with a song. And that song is Moses singing a song to the people. And in the song, he tells them, you have to follow the Lord. You're not able to follow the Lord Humble yourselves and follow the Lord. And at the end of Deuteronomy, the end of the writings of Moses, the foundation of the Hebrew Bible and the foundation of our Bible, even with the New Testament, at the end of Genesis through Deuteronomy, we don't know. We don't know. We don't know anything about how God will bring his people to him in the right way. And the reason for that, I, I mentioned Leviticus has no song. Leviticus is the center of Moses' writing. The, the, the sermon title today is The Song They Couldn't Sing. In the book of Leviticus, they cannot sing a song. And the reason they cannot sing a song in the book of Leviticus is because the book of Leviticus does not present us with a solution. In Genesis 49, there's a conclusion, and they're rejoicing in what God has done. In Exodus 15, there's a conclusion, they're rejoicing in what God has done. In, in Numbers even though the people are in the wrong, when we read that story, we come away seeing a conclusion that even though God won't let these people in the promised land, there's a conclusion and he's going to do what he says he will do. It's, a, it's celebratory for the people in the future. In Deuteronomy at the end, the same thing. There's a conclusion and we see that God is good and to follow after him. But in Leviticus, in the center, the book of Leviticus is a book on atonement. And in the very center of Leviticus, Leviticus operates, it's called a chiasm, where it's like a, the center of the book, chapter 16. Everything hinges on it. It is the climactic moment of Leviticus. And if you have a bulletin, in the bulletin, I've got kind of outlined how everything Moses writes builds to this moment. Because the book of Leviticus, the book without a song, is the book where we should see the answer to the question, how can God and his people be reconciled to live in the land together where heaven meets earth? And instead of seeing heaven and earth meet, instead of seeing this perfect harmony, instead of seeing man able to be in God's presence fully unhindered, we come to a thing called the Day of Atonement. Leviticus 16 begins that God said to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron who drew too near to the Lord. And, and the two sons of Aaron, it's important to note, in, in Leviticus 10, 
these two sons of Aaron who are operating as priests, they go to do an offering before the Lord, but it is not an offering the Lord has commanded. And because it's not an offering the Lord has commanded, what they are doing is saying, hey, you know what, even though the Lord didn't tell us this, this would be good for us to do in our eyes. And so even in the act of offering to the Lord, sin. And so they are consumed in flame because they enter too close to the Lord in a way that they should have never done. And so we come to Leviticus 16, and this is called the Day of Atonements. And and what happens on this day is that the high priest, at first Aaron, but then the high priest that would come after him, the high priest would put on special garments, not their normal priestly clothes, a, a specific set of clothing set aside for this day. And the high priest would offer normal purification sacrifices, normal sacrifices to prepare themselves to enter into what was called the Holy of Holies. In the deepest part of the temple was this place where the Ark of the Covenant was. And humans could not enter there because the presence of God was there. They were not allowed to be there because of sin. But once a year, the priest had to go in there. The reason the priest had to go in there becomes clear as we go further and further into this. The priest would put on the clothing and they would sacrifice a young bull and another animal. And then after that, after they were prepared, two goats would be brought to them. And the priest would cast lots, which is essentially flipping a coin. And one of the goats would be dedicated to the Lord. And the other goat would be sent into the wilderness momentarily. And, and so the goat that was to be dedicated to the Lord, the priest would sacrifice that goat. And when that goat was sacrificed, the priest would collect the blood of that goat. And the priest would go into the Holy of Holies, the deepest part of the temple, the place where heaven met earth, where God dwelled among his people. And the priest would flick blood and sprinkle blood throughout that space. The reason for this is because blood blood represents life in the Bible. Blood does not represent death in the Bible. Blood represents life in the Bible. And, and what would happen throughout the course of the year is the, the tabernacle or eventually the temple where the Israelites worshipped God, even in their act of worshipping Him, the temple itself would become defiled because of sin. The space where they went to purify themselves before the Lord had to be purified from them purifying themselves. That is the cost of us redefining good and evil in our own terms. That is the cost of sin. And so the priest would go in and the blood would be put over everything. The the language used is seven times just completely making sure the blood was sprinkled everywhere to cleanse the space where God dwelt with His people. And after the priest did this, after the temple was cleansed, the priest would come out and this other goat, um, the priest would place both hands on this goat. Now if any of you have your Bible out, um, this goat is called in a lot of translations uh, Azazel. Um, And there are two ways this can be translated. If you have an ESV Bible, this is translated, it's just left Azazel. And some people believe that this goat was sent out to a demon. And they believe this because the word Azazel is super confusing. 
and it's really hard to translate. Until you look at the Hebrew language, I think it's actually really simple, but for some reason people don't. Um, the, the word Azazel is Oz, like escape, and then Azel is goat. I might have those two backwards, but it's literally scapegoat. And, and what is happening in this moment is, is the priest would put both hands on the goat, and the priest would confess the sins of the people of Israel and the sins of the nation of Israel. And the, the priest's sins would con- confess them over this goat. All of them. And then the priest would send that goat, the high priest would send that goat into the care of a man who was prepared, and he would take the goat out into the wilderness to remove all of the sin from the camp. Because the camp of Israel and then the, the nation of Israel were the place where heaven meets earth, where God is dwelling in the temple, and so they had to remove all that sin if they wanted God to remain with them. And, and, and so this goat would be taken into the wilderness. And tradition tells us a lot of things about this. One of the things I am most fascinated by is when that man who was prepared to take the goat out, when he got far enough away, he would make sure that goat never made it back to the camp. Um, He wouldn't slit the goat's throat or anything to directly kill it, but he would break legs or throw it from a high place to make sure that goat could not walk back into the camp. And the extremity of this was because they never wanted that sin put on the goat brought back into the camp. Because that place was where God was supposed to dwell with His people. And that place was a place that was defiled by the people. And they had to work so hard to even come close to being in right relationship with God. It it, it comes to the end of this. And and remember, we're talking about why there's no song here. There's no song here because in the book of Leviticus, the end result is that every year we're just trying to make sure it doesn't get worse. The end result of the writing of Moses is that if we want to be atoned before God, if we want to have our debt covered and paid, if we want to be in right relationship with God in the land where He wants to be with us, there's nothing we can do. And and so the book of Leviticus ends, and there's no song in Leviticus, but throughout all of Moses' writing, there's, there's no solution to this problem. And throughout the rest of the Old Testament, right up to the end, there's no solution. The Hebrew Old Testament traditionally ends with Second Chronicles. And the final word of Second Chronicles is an incomplete sentence that starts, let go up. There's no subject, so it's, a, it's an incomplete word that we just don't know what to do with. Because at the end of the Old Testament, the question of who is the one who will defeat evil? Who is the one who will give us a final, lasting atonement? Who is the one who will actually cover our sins? Is not answered. But if we understand this, then when we come to Jesus and the cross, it's so much different. It's so much clearer. Because you see, at the crucifixion, we are talking about true atonement. There, there are so many traditions tied up into the crucifixion. One of the most interesting ones, the Holy of Holies. When Jesus died on the cross, the curtain that separated that Holy of Holies that only the high priest would cross once a year, that curtain tore. There, there are so many things. Animal sacrifice no longer needed to happen. Tradition tells us that the Jewish people, some of the sacrifices they did were they, they, ritual things that they did were they no longer saw the response they expected from the Lord. 
And, and what happens when Jesus died on the cross is that those animal sacrifices and that blood that was an imperfect sacrifice, it was an imperfect solution to the problem. Those sacrifices became unnecessary because what Jesus did was perfect. What Jesus did when He died on the cross was He offered us blood that could cover all the sin. What Jesus did when He died on the cross was offered us an atonement before God so that we can live in right relationship with God in the land that He has for us now and for eternity. And, and what we see at the crucifixion is we see that Jesus recognized He is the Son of God. He is from the line of David. He is a king he willingly placed himself there so that his blood would cover our sin. And, and it's his blood covering our sin that allows us a perfect sacrifice. It does not need to be done yearly. It does not need to be done with other things sacrificed involved. It does not need, in fact, the, the book of Hebrews tells us that if the temple still existed, and if the Ark of the Covenant was still there, and if the Holy of Holies, if the Jewish people still had it, and, and acted fearfully about entering it, if we have been covered by Jesus' blood, we could walk in there and just touch everything. That's, that's offered to us because of what Jesus has done, and because of Him covering us in His blood. I'm going to invite our ushers forward to pass out the com communion elements and then we'll partake.
Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of of sins. I tell you I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. After tonight, there was a new song that we can sing that couldn't be sung in Leviticus. There was a new song that we could sing in worship and in response to the blood that was shed that fully atoned us. So I want to invite you, you can sit or stand as we continue worshiping.
love you so much. We thank you so much for your sacrifice. We thank you for this gift, for this opportunity where we can come and spend time together and just worship you, Lord.